0: The preaching of God's word then is found in Hebrews chapter 2, there at verse 11. This evening, as we gather to seek the Lord's blessing upon us and invoke His name by His grace to pour out His many mercies, we give attention now to verse 11, Hebrews 2, wherein it speaks of our beloved Savior. For both He That sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This word ashamed is a word which our culture doesn't know what to do with. When it should be ashamed, it celebrates, and when it should celebrate, it stands ashamed. The Christian is perhaps the only one who has come to realize wherein shame is found and when it is that it should be felt. It's related to our sins, of course. And of course, when it is our sins are discovered, we feel necessarily shame. So what a wonder then that whereas sin is inseparable from shame, that here we read that Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. There are those that we can imagine in our lives, relationships of siblings, parents, children, who engage in such reckless behavior and sin that it actually shames us. Now our culture may push back against that, but there is, an undeniable fact and quality that when scandalous sin is committed by, say, a brother, that the other brother cannot but feel a sense of shame because that near kin is one who has so horribly transgressed. And yet notice the words before us. Here it says that he, speaking of Christ, Is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now, notice the context of this chapter, particularly the immediately surrounding portion. From verse 9 and following, we have this focus upon Jesus Christ. Surely that's already taken place, but it's moving from this focus upon his inherent, eternal, divine glory to the wonder of his saving work on behalf of his people. So if you go back, for instance, to chapter one, you'll notice the essential divinity of Christ is asserted in verse eight. Unto the son he saith, as we uh, sang earlier, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And he is, as the mediator, likewise appointed as king. And so he bears a name, and authority that is above everything, which we read earlier in chapter 2. But you'll notice verse 9 is now pushing this transition more fully, which focuses upon the wonder of this grand work of the Savior. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels... That in of itself is astounding, but what follows, follows is even more. Why was he made a little lower than the angels? For the suffering of death. And it is in verse 10 that he here called the captain, the lead of their salvation. You'll notice in following our verse, this theme continues how it is in verses 11 through 14 his identity with his people which begins in verse 11 and goes forward as he calls them his brethren again in verse 12 and notice he speaks of the children verse 13 which God hath given me and it goes onward but what's astounding is he takes their very nature verse 14 and following for what purpose for the purpose of delivering them, and to do so by the shedding of his own blood. Notice toward the end of verse 17 to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, to this end, that he then might be able to succor or comfort them that are tempted. The whole work of Christ is targeting this caring, loving service to his people. Our particular verse needs some attention before we go further. Notice it says in verse 11, he that sanctifieth. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. You'll notice it's not speaking of the Father because it speaks of he that sanctifieth as of one. He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. So it's speaking of Christ the Son as he eternally is so, generated from the Father, but also as he is the incarnate Son, incarnate according to the Father's good pleasure. And then it speaks of they who are sanctified, which is in the passive. This speaks of his people for whom he gave himself. So he is the sanctifier. They are the sanctified ones, both the one who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. That is, of the Father. Notice verse 13. Here the Son speaking, I and the children which God hath given me. And likewise, verse 14, it speaks of how it is that as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same So he is identifying himself with them in order to save them according to the Father's good pleasure. All of this then leads to this statement at verse 11. It says that in light of this truth, that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Why is that the case? Well, Notice it's not because of anything inherent in them. It's not because they themselves have done excellently. It's not because they themselves have stood up above others and said, look what good things I've done. It's rather because of the Father's will. You see this again and again in the book of John, particularly as one example, John 17, the record of Christ's high priestly prayer. And he's always talking about this relationship, I and the Father, the Father giving me this people, my people, let them who are in me be also in you, and so on, all of this relationship that's there, Christ is glorying, delighting in this relationship established by the Father. And in light of the same, he is not ashamed of his people. Brethren, this is a wondrous truth on its own terms, but it's of particular use upon the occasion of discovering our own sins. And if we've given any attention whatsoever to spiritual exercise of examining ourselves, we most necessarily have discovered some sin. Anyone who says, I've examined myself, I haven't discovered any sin. We have no hesitation in saying that person is spiritually blind. They cannot recognize sin. So soon as the light of God's word shines upon us, we cannot but acknowledge we've sinned. Even if the world would consider it little, as doubtlessly they think all sin is little, but sins of speech. What is it that caused Isaiah to say, I stand condemned? It was that he was a man of unclean lips. And he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. So as soon as God's holiness was displayed unto him, he could not but acknowledge he stood worthy of judgment. And when that comes to pass, doubtlessly you and I stand ashamed of ourselves. And yet what a sweet and needed word that though that is in one sense, good and right, Christ is not ashamed of us. This is of immense help to us as we hope to draw near to enjoy his presence. Because what happens when we're convinced someone is ashamed of us? What happens when we're convinced our shame is such That we could never show our face again in the presence of the one to whom we are indebted by our wickedness and sin and shame. Well, you see it in the Garden of Eden, don't you? So as soon as Adam and Eve discover their sin, they're ashamed of it. They try to cover themselves. And then God comes in the cool of the day, walking in the midst of the garden. And what happens? Adam and Eve hide themselves. See, that's the effect of sin. It's shaming. This is why the world is such a brazen and wicked thing that it is not shamed by its sin. Well, when the believer is aware of his sin, he becomes and she becomes downcast. And it's then that we need to have, as it were, God to lift up our heads and look again to our beloved Savior, which we hope to do some extent this evening. How is it that Christ is not ashamed of his people? Well, one thing we can say very briefly is it's not because there's not something to be ashamed of. This needs to be secured in our minds. Sin is sin, and sin is always connected to shame. Indeed, it cannot be otherwise In the light of truth. Truth is pure and holy. And think of how sin is spoken of as pollution and corruption. You know, we get embarrassed to have someone over to our house if our rooms aren't clean. Because, you know, that's embarrassing to us. Well, how much more when our souls are unclean? How could we think to enjoy the fellowship of God? Well, how then is it that he is not ashamed? Well, you'll notice the text is quite clear in this. Firstly, it's because of a shared father. This opens up tremendous things for us just by way of connection. When you think of 1 John, John writing that um, those who are begotten of God will love those who are begotten of him as well, right? So if God has begotten us will love the others whom he has begotten, his children. Well, this is seen in Christ himself. Notice, he that sanctifieth and them that are sanctified are all of one. This is an astounding truth, and we need to take some care in understanding it. Here, in speaking of the eternal son, as already referenced in Chapter 1, He is the express image of His person. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of His power. And so on, the glorious, eternal Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Not an act in time, not way back when, but eternally begotten of the Father. He is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the essential Son of God. But he's also that Son of God incarnate according to the Father's will. And so these things, of course, are instructing us regarding the Son. He's not, in essence, subordinate to the Father. He is uh, of equal glory with the Father and the Spirit, three divine persons, one eternal God. And yet he gladly takes up this humble position in accordance to the work of salvation. And he humbles himself to the glory of his Father in order to fulfill the work of saving his people. You'll notice then with those that are sanctified, it's not the same thing. We aren't essentially sons of God. We don't have the same essence as God. We surely aren't eternally begotten of the Father. But it is the case that by grace, through faith, we have been received into the Father's household. And so you can see this in John's Gospel, chapter 1, when having mentioned, of course, think of the the pattern of Scripture in these things, asserting the um, equality of Father and Son together, uh, as well as Spirit elsewhere. But in John Chapter 1, there at the very beginning, the word was with God, the word was God. And yet from that, what flows is not only this glorious testimony of his divine person, but his coming into the world. And you'll notice in verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. So you see the role of faith, receiving him, those that believe on his name. But you'll also then see in verse 13, this is the effect of grace. Faith is not the cause of grace. Faith is the effect of grace, which were born, not of blood, not, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God. And so those who embrace Christ Jesus are those who are born again. This is why in two chapters from that, Christ will say to Nicodemus, except you be born again, you shall not see, you cannot see, and later you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. The point relevant to our own text is that here we see God has been pleased to renew And bring into his family these people. So you can think of this as an analogy with reference to a family. So you think of a mother and father who have a child in the normal manner. And so they have a child by birth. And then years later perhaps uh, they are given the opportunity to adopt a child that is not theirs by birth. And they bring that child into the family And that child now has all of the legal rights of the family. And the child by birth, the natural child, is now a sibling with this adoptive child, adopted child. Here is an astounding fact. Christ is pleased to call us brethren. This should hit us with an astonishing weight. The eternal son of God in the immeasurable wonder of his work for us, is pleased to call us brothers and sisters. Now, he always retains that essential dignity that is his alone, as he is the object of worship and adoration. And there are indeed testimonies to this in this very book. And we indeed acknowledge that he is our elder brother and so on. And yet we should not miss the weight of this wonderful statement that Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is pleased to look upon his people as beloved brothers and sisters. Thus, notice the weight and wonder of John chapter 20, when it is that Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is giving a word of encouragement and exhortation to his people. He says there, John chapter 20 and verse 17 to Mary. He says, touch me not. The word is much stronger than our understanding of touch. It's don't cleave to me. Don't hold on to me. For I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And he's testifying of this rich provision of these familial ties by grace that now bind him to them because of this gracious work of salvation all in accordance to the Father's good pleasure Of saving a people. So you can think of it this way in this analogy, and of course, every analogy would break down if you push it too far. But you can imagine a father and mother with a one child home, and they're talking with the child, and they're saying, You know, we've been talking, and it's our desire to bring this other boy into our home and adopt him. And the son saying, That's my delight. I'm delighted. To see that one brought in. To be made my brother. And indeed to enjoy the riches of this home. That's the notion of what's taking place here. The son is delighted in it. And here of course the eternal son incarnate is delighted in this great work. But notice secondly how is it that Christ is not ashamed? It is because of a sanctifying work. He does not leave them in their rebellion. He doesn't bring them in as rebels to maintain their rebellion. We rather read that it is he that sanctifieth. And so this speaks of the Son incarnate, even Jesus Christ. Notice this language, sanctifieth. We hear that and we're prone to think merely of the progressive sanctification that takes place over time. There is initial, of course, at regeneration, and then it progresses through, and that's true. But in Hebrews, many times the word is speaking of that initial consecration that takes place at conversion, the forgiveness of our sins, and the initial setting uh, uh, us apart unto the Lord. So, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10 and at verse 10, We read, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 14 as well, same chapter, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So this is speaking of that initial sanctification, which we theologically often refer to as the conversion, and that regeneration that takes place by God's grace. All the same, notice that it is not something that doesn't happen. What do we mean by that? He doesn't just bring them into the family and say, just live as you want. Rather, he's given himself that these whom the father has chosen would then take part in the family likeness. He's going to cleanse them. He's going to transform them. This is important to realize that by nature we are corrupt. We are profane. We are an impure thing. Sin is regularly referred to as pollution and corruption. Just as one example, if you turn to Ezekiel in chapter 20, you'll see how Sin is spoken of in this way. We could stay in this chapter itself, but you'll notice there at verse 30 speaks of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, are ye polluted after the manner of your fathers and commit ye whoredoms after their abominations? And likewise, in verse 31 for when you offer your gifts, when you make your sons to pass through the fire, you pollute yourselves with all your idols, even unto this day. And shall I be inquired of by you? He says, as I live, I will not be inquired of by you. What's going on? He's saying you're my covenant people outwardly, but you are committed to corruption and pollution. And so when you come and you cry out to me, I will not hear it. That should startle us in this sense, if we rely upon our mere outward covenant standing. But here, what is being mentioned in our text, Hebrews 2, is that work of Christ, whereby he saves his people and cleanses them by his blood. His blood applied to them to forgive them so that though sin pollutes us, what does his blood do? It washes us. And so we read of this, of course, in many places that might come to your mind that it is though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This is because of his grace and the blood of Christ applied to us. This is the fundamental point. That's being made. Though it is that we stand polluted in our sins and would stand ashamed because of our sins, the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin. That's the great hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is not his progressive sanctification. That's a confirming mark. That's a mark saying, look, there's work going on and I'm not what I once was, praise God. And yet, if we have eyes to see it, we're certainly not what we should be. And if we simply looked at that, it would be enough to overwhelm us with shame. But our hope is not that work within us. It's the work of Christ for us. It's Christ crucified, His blood, His righteousness imputed unto us. And this is all that's before us. And throughout this book, the wonderful work of Christ which cleanses us from all sin. This tells us we must be cleansed in order to enjoy fellowship with God. It's not just we must be in covenant with God because in Ezekiel, they were in covenant with God and yet they were not going to enjoy fellowship with God. They come and ask things, they request things, they inquire, and God says, it's not going to happen. You're a polluted and thus impure, and thus despised people. We could say it this way. God saying to them, I stand ashamed of you. Do you understand that? That's what happens when in Moses' day, the tabernacle gets lifted up and moved out of the camp. God was ashamed of his people. That's what happens when the captivities come, the temple's destroyed. God's ashamed of his people. They were going on, living in sin. They were presuming upon covenant promises and forgetting and neglecting and uh, standing opposed to the covenant responsibilities. And most importantly, they were neglecting to embrace the promises that God was holding forth in his covenant, that he would cleanse them from their sins as they call upon him. And so he says, I'm not going to be inquired of you. But for those who are sanctified by the blood of Christ, those who have Christ as theirs, those who have Christ's blood washing them from their sins, they stand cleansed. And he's not ashamed of them. This is so important for the church today that to neglect this is to continue the great tragedy that continues in the church with many presumption or much presumption Throughout her ranks. What is before us is Christ saving his people by his blood applied and that received by faith. Paul says it a bit differently and yet to the same effect in Ephesians and chapter 5. He doesn't deny the sins of his people, but notice. Embedded in this exhortation, husbands love your wives. Verse 25, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify, there's the word, and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So the word, the means of grace that is used of the uh, great king to apply his work. Which word is to be received by faith? And so, in other words, in order for us to enjoy this great fellowship with Christ, it must be that Christ cleanses us by the applying of his blood to us. This is again, as we saw earlier in referencing Hebrews' point of sanctifying, chapter 10, and there at verse 10. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the work of Christ is central. Verse 10 of Hebrews 10, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And again and again, this comes up. Verse 12 of Hebrews 13 Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. See, the way that Christ sanctifies in this sense is by the application of his blood to us. What's that saying? Their debts demand judgment. And he said, I'll take the judgment. I'll bear it so that I answer for every last one of their offenses that they then are released, as it were, from their uh, uh, deserved punishment because I've borne it. I've cleansed them from it. This leads us then, thirdly, that he that sanctifies brings forth what? Thirdly, a sanctified people. So he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified... This reminds us that when the blood of Christ is applied, the people are cleansed. And so you think of the pollution and the foul reality of sin, the blood of Christ applied cleanses us from the sin. This is our great focus and hope and our direction that when it is we discover sin, we're then to look to Christ freshly and say, Christ, it's your blood that cleanses me from my sin. It's not just that we go back and say, well, you know, I prayed that prayer 15 years ago and I'm forgiven of all my sin. Present sin needs fresh application of the blood of Christ to speak peace to us. And this is why Christ is regularly presenting himself throughout the scriptures and why it is he's instituted the Lord's Supper that we would ever have him in remembrance and the work of his death for us because that alone is what speaks peace to us. It's Christ's work on the cross that purifies us and cleanses us. And so it is that his people, by his redeeming work, they are cleansed. Notice 1 Corinthians 6, there at verse 11. After noting all of these wicked sins, fornicators, adulterers, covetous, Drunkards, and so on. Paul says, such were some of you. It's needed to be emphasized in our age. The sins which were the identity of believers before their faith are no longer their identity after their faith. And so, this whole discussion in certain realms today that talks about, well, can I be a gay Christian? Could you imagine anyone in Paul's day saying, you know, I'm an effeminate Christian. I'm an adulterer Christian. I'm a fornicating Christian. I'm a stealing Christian. I'm a drunk Christian. You'd say, absolutely not. Well, why is it that they are changed? Paul tells us, verse 11, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When the grace of God comes upon a person, there's pardon and purity. There's a real change that takes place. It's not that it's perfect as far as the personal change, but it is real and it really is begun. And so Paul doesn't say, You used to be more of this than you once were. He says, you were those things, but now ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified. And what's central to it all? The name that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, and by the spirit of our God. Notice it's not counseling. It's not medication that turned thieves to those who worked and labored and had to give. It's not counseling and medication and psychiatry that changed all these things. It's the grace of God. It's Christ who comes in and transforms the people because the fundamental problem of these things is not mental illness. There's a news story in a neighboring state or a distant state. I can't remember And it talks about how uh, this crime happened. And the common oz was, look at mental illness. Now, there is nothing in the report that mentioned anything of psychiatric need, care, or whatever. What was before us was a simple testimony of sin. The world counts sin mental illness. And thus says, well, what's the need then? Well, if it's mental illness, it needs mental health. And so you get counseling and therapy and all those things. And we acknowledge there are things that require such provision. But brethren, fornication is not mental illness. Stealing is not mental illness. Idolatry is not mental illness. It's rebellion and moral pollution before God. And what it needs is the radical grace of God through Christ. Our society will never see her sins dealt with until she rightly identifies them as sins. And the only remedy being Jesus Christ. Well, here's the good news for the Christian. Our greatest problem is answered by Christ. We wish to be clear. There are undeniably issues of the mind requiring great psychological and psychiatric help, but sin is not one of them. Sin is a moral rebellion against God. There are chemical imbalances. There are uh, all sorts of issues that need help and counseling and so on. But sin is simply enmity with God. It is disclosing the foul pollution of wickedness and the need is Jesus Christ and here's the good news so soon as one has Christ what are they they're cleansed and so his people are now different than they once were both judicially Because by justification, they are pardoned and they are reckoned righteous, declared righteous by the imputation of his righteousness. And through his grace, they are being sanctified so that their heart is being renewed. Their mind is being renewed. They're being transformed so as to put off the old man and to put on the new man. This all flows to us because of Jesus Christ. Now, when we see all of this, we then understand why it is that Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren. It's also why in the Song of Solomon, sometimes you'll notice these overwhelming statements. Thou art all fair, my love. Now, we can say that to Christ without hesitation, but it's often Christ saying it to the bride. And we stumble at that and say, how is that possible? It's because he sees us through the lens of his grace to us by which he has accomplished our salvation. He sees us as the purchased people. He sees us as the cleansed people. He sees us and welcomes us as the pardoned people. He sees us as those who one day will be perfected. And so it is he's not ashamed. This doesn't mean he doesn't reprove us still, but he reproves us in love. He reproves us in kindness. This doesn't mean it's not severe. Doesn't mean he doesn't bring the rod with even fierceness of affliction on occasion. But it does mean even that is administered not of shame toward us, but of love for us. And it's here where we start to get the true and sound sense of how we can have comfort before God. It's not because of us. It's not by looking within. It's not by making promises and resolutions and so on, though they ought to be made. It is simply and solely because of Jesus Christ. That's the focus. If ever one should be comforted. Whereas self-examination gets a bad reputation in some circles today, it's because they fail to acknowledge that self-examination is only part of the equation. Self-examination is then unto Christ's exaltation. It brings us low in the sight of ourselves, but then it brings us high in the sight of Christ. And what's happening in the whole work of God bringing us to the table, as Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread. God brings us low, that he may, by Christ, bring us high. That's the focus. We see our sins, but then we see our Savior. We see and acknowledge our guilt and our shame, but then we see our righteousness and our covering. He clothes us with the garments of salvation. He uh, puts upon us all of the robes of righteousness He is the Lord, our righteousness, who saves us, who loved us, who gave himself for us. It all directs us to Jesus Christ. This is why from self-examination, we must go to a focus upon Christ. Because Christ is the hope for the believer. Without this, without this focus on Christ, there's not one who could come with any spiritual sensitivity with comfort to the table because they would be trembling the whole time saying, I'm not worthy to be here. I don't deserve to be here. If my sins were disclosed to this table, I would be shocked if the earth didn't open up and swallow me whole. If my sins were disclosed to the people, I would be shocked if there weren't a If there were still a rock on the ground that were not covering me, my sins are egregious in the presence of God. And if this were shown to the people, it would be undone. But Christ comes and says, This is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. What's he saying to us? You're right. Sins are horrible. In fact, in order for their payment to be given, I had to die. But here's the good news that's exactly what I did. And why? Because I'm not ashamed to call you my brethren. I've answered the law's demands, I've answered justice. I have given to you righteousness. I have brought you out of what you want what you once were so that now you're mine. You are with me. You're my sibling by grace. You're my father's son by grace. And so he delights in his people. And he calls them to himself. He institutes the Lord's supper and he does so that it should continue until the day he comes. As Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death till he Come. Why is he doing that? Because he's wanting us to remember that he's not ashamed of us. He sets a table for us and he says, Come. The people we're ashamed of, we don't invite to our homes. We say, stay out. You're not going to be welcome here. The people that we're not ashamed of, we delight to have them in our presence. Whose table is set before us. It's the Lord's table. Who reigns at the table? It's the Lord. Who invites us to his table? Christ Jesus does. And on what grounds may we come and eat and drink with joy and gladness? Because the meal we feed upon is the one who sanctifies us, who gave himself for us, whose broken body and poured out blood cleanses us from all sin. Brethren, it may be over the past week you have ridden the heights of the riches of grace. It may be that you have plumbed the depths of souls' sorrows. But whatever the case, your only comfort in the presence of God will not be your experience, but your Savior. It's He that sanctifies us and hear that open your ears to it by God's grace. He's not ashamed of us. He delights to call us his brethren. He's come for us that we may be his brethren. He's come not only to forgive us, but to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be with him. Brethren, all of this testifies of the love of God to us in Christ. Perhaps tonight Satan will jump upon us and seek to remind us of our many failures. What will we do? Deafen our ears and say, you're not right. You know, that's not true. And so on. We know he's a liar, but we can say to him, Satan, you don't know the half of it. No, what you say is not even nearly as far as should be said. I'm far worse than you think. I'm far more deplorable than you imagine. I'm far more so than I imagine. But I know this, that my Savior is perfect. And His perfect sacrifice has purified me from all of my sin. My hope is not in myself. It is rather in my Savior. That's the message of the Lord's Supper. We come to enjoy our Savior. And astoundingly, it is then that when we come to enjoy him, that our souls are nourished by him unto greater joy in him. That the more we lessen ourselves and magnify Christ, what actually happens is our souls actually become more enlarged. Not as the world, you know, there are happy people in the world, people that celebrate. They always seem to have a pep in their step and so on. It's not that. That's all self-induced or personality or whatever else. It's not that at all. It's that as we get smaller and Christ gets bigger, it's then that our true joy is seen. The world doesn't have it. We would be glad never to be thought of by anybody so that Christ would have the preeminent glory because that's what satisfies our souls. Well, brethren... Much, indeed, is before us as we anticipate the Lord's Supper. But whatever else we keep in our minds, let us keep this in mind. That Christ has come. And Christ has accomplished the work of salvation. Christ is not ashamed of you, his believing people. But delights to have you in his presence at his table as his brother and sister. Because of what he has done in accordance to the Father's purpose. Well, stand with me then for prayer.